Uh, hello and welcome to the Cine Skinny, the premier film podcast in all of the land. Uh, just the three of us today, it's uh, Peter Simpson with Ellie Robertson and Jamie Dunn. Anna Heat has abandoned us to go to Venice, but she will be dialing in later. Ellie, Jamie, how are you? I'm good. Jamie? Warm, sweaty, stressed, all, all, the, all, the, all the S's. September. September. Warm. One of the famous S's. <laughs> Off to a good yeah, start. Yeah. Swarm. <laughs> <laughs> swarm well, swarm lousy swarm weather um, we are back at EHFM in Summer Hall and today we are talking about long lost loves old men on farms and films that are about films and also some stuff from Venice that none of us have heard yet but it'll probably be quite interesting we'll have a lovely time but before we get started I have to do the most awkwardly tense confused thank you so both of you just bear with me I wrote it out and I think I've got it right so thanks to everyone who has come to or is about to come to our Cine Skinny Film Club screenings with Mubi of Passages. Glasgow is tomorrow as we record, but yesterday as you listen. Edinburgh is here at Summer Hall on Thursday, which is today, unless you are listening to this later, in which case it isn't. Couldn't be clearer. Couldn't be clearer. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thanks to everyone who has come, will come. Uh, and continues to come to these screenings. There will be more of them shortly once we get a few details ironed out. We'll be back at CCN Summer Hall before you know it. So that'll be fun. Nice little treat. Uh, another nice little treat is, are we allowed to tell say that the Indie Cinema Guide's coming back? Yeah, we are. Independent Cinema Guide's coming back. That's partly why Jamie's so stressed. But more details of that surely to follow. But for today, we're going to talk about two films. We'll get straight into the first one. I failed to watch this as a result of a, a what would you call it, admin error on my part. This is Past Lives, which is the much-hyped debut film from Celine Song. Mega buzz, five stars everywhere, including from The Skinny Magazine, where we all work. Uh, so Nora and Sung are childhood friends in Korea who are then kind of pulled apart when Nora's family emigrates to Canada and then several decades after their separation they are reunited in the flesh for a week in New York City. Uh, so yeah, I didn't watch this because I got confused about what the expiry date on the screener meant but I believe that Jamie and Ellie, you both did watch it and I will come to you first, Jamie. What do you reckon? Hello. Um, yes, you mentioned all the hype there. That damn, I did. That, I did mention all the hype. I'd mentioned it to set you up for this next bit. Thank you, because uh, that hype really irked me. Because I was set up uh, for seeing a masterpiece. You know, I was told it was the best film of the year, five stars across the board. Um, and you know, well, no film can live up to that hype. Let's face it. But this film will really let me down a little bit. Um, I, I think my biggest issue is it's got a structural problem. You know, first of all, um, it's a film about a kind of triangle of people. Um, but it keeps them all apart for most of the movie. So, you know, you've got this idea that um, Hang Sung and Nora are these star-crossed lovers who, you know, have been separated um, since they're 12, and every 12 years they kind of reconnect somehow. But that's not really that dramatic, you know? Watching two people chat on Skype is not super exciting for me. Um, uh, so I, th I think that was a big issue. Um, and, and, you know, I think if the film works at all, it's because the actors are really good. Like, I think... Uh, the two actors who play Hang Sung and Nora are fantastic. It's Greta Lee and, and Tia Yu. They, they communicate a lot more than that's in the script because I feel the script, despite spending a lot of time with these characters, I never really felt we got below the surface, you know? We, we know they love each other, but I don't. I never quite knew why. Part of that is because they don't connect enough. Um, and and, it, and that really becomes clear in the, while watching the film because the film... I thought was very kind of stayed for about an hour and then it becomes electric in the last half hour when 
all three of them so so um Nora Hangsong and Nora's husband all connect in, in New York and the film becomes really good I think for for half an hour and I would just wish it was more of that more you know the the the, the I, I get the, I get the idea that it's that, that there's a tension by keeping these people apart but I, I think the film sort of uh fails because of that um so Ellie did, uh, yeah did I mean I think that I think you might be right about the hype train. I sort of went in with big expectations and they weren't really matched. But at the same time, I'm willing to admit that I have like very strict, I have like very high expectations when it comes to romance movies. And what I like about this is that it's kind of unconventional, right? It's that it's not really your traditional romance movie. It begins in media res with unseen onlookers sort of catching a glimpse of these three people at a bar and wondering what could be the possible connection between the three of them. And Despite the fact that a lot happens in the film, by the time we come back around to that at the end of the film, we don't even really have a strong answer. And it feels like, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't go in the typical twists and turns of your average romantic movie. And it kind of says something about how real life relationships tend to be a lot less, uh, a lot less eventful. Um, that does mean that it's not necessarily the most dynamic of films. And I also think that like, you know, you get wrapped up in, a, in an on-screen romance when the characters appear to be having like a really good time or they're funny or they sort of wind each other up in a great way. And it, it kind of makes you feel connected to how you interact with other normal human beings. But that doesn't really happen here. It's mostly just these very static Skype calls where things are really, really intense and people leave big pauses. Um, but it's not that I completely hated it. I mean, there's lots of stuff that I like about this film. Like, for example, those Skype calls, like, I love that the film has its own sense of time. Like, we know that it's 12 years ago because people are using Skype instead of Zoom. And they're looking up childhood friends on Facebook to see where they wound up. And it's like, people don't do that anymore. We just don't care about that anymore. But 12 years ago, that was the most novel thing in the world. And everyone was obsessed with it. And it was kind of a flash in the pan of this, like, obsessive behavior. And this film kind of is all about the weird entanglement of these two people who just followed that impulse 12 years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it does ask you to get on a certain wavelength and I'm just not always on that wavelength with the characters. There's the scene where, um, you know, uh, her husband, Arthur, says, what if you had met someone else at that artist's residency? What if you'd not gotten together with me, but you'd gotten together with just any other person? And it's sort of like, well, yeah, that's sure. But you can say that about literally everything and everyone we know in life. And that doesn't mean that we don't like what we have. But I think that in a weird way, some people might find that quite therapeutic because people in general spend a lot like, you know, everyone spends too much time wondering about what might have been or what could be. And they fall into it like kind of a trap. And I think that this film is about that trap. So, I mean, I think that, yeah, like it, it's an interesting romance film where they're all kind of aware of the fact that there are these conventions that everyone expects of them. The husband himself says, this is a line in the trailer that like in any other story, I would be the villain who'd be standing in the way of you and your childhood sweetheart getting back together. But, you know, whereas the characters themselves are battling with what might have been or what could be, the audience are battling with traditional romantic movie twists and turns and how, you know, real life it is a lot it involves a lot more silence and the silence at the end is like a very powerful it, yeah like it, it, it's very powerful when by the end of the film a lot of the characters don't have anything to say about this huge experience and it kind of invites you to just sit there with that strange like unexpected feeling 
And I don't want to get into spoilers or anything too much about it, but like I'm, I'm kind of like skirting around the fact that this is a film where things just definitely don't swing about in the way in the wild ways that romance films often do. Yeah, I think you're definitely right that that character Arthur is a much more interesting than another film might have made him. You know, the the, the temptation would be uh, to make him a dickhead, mm-hmm. you know, or, or make him a, a reason that she should leave him. You know, that he's not good for her or whatever, and and, and he's he's that's not the case at all. Uh, is it John? Majaro, I think so. Yeah, who plays him? Yeah, it does a really great job because there's a great moment just where um, it's uh, Nora and uh, is a uh, Nora and Hesung. Yeah. Um, they get they get back. They've they've been out on their date. Uh, you know, their date. They're, you know, he's he's came he's came all the way from New York, the Starcross lover, to see her, and and she's spent a day with him going around Brooklyn. They went uh, they went on the ferry to see. Um, yeah, the Statue of Liberty you know they've done all those kind of cliche things and he's just sitting there on his own in the apartment clearly not happy about this but he has to put on a brave face for it because he's a good guy he doesn't want to like you know he wants to give her this experience um, where she sees her old friend and he doesn't want to act jealous but he clearly is and that you know those moments are great where you get to get to see a sne- snippet of the character but I think it comes from the actors not from the script I think the script is not great at sort of explaining what these characters are feeling. So, so the, the, all the heavy lifting, I think, is done by the actor rather, rather than the script. Totally. I think that, like, the idea in this film that I'm interested about is, like, an unconventional one that doesn't often get discussed in romance movies, which is, like, what happens when you have two soulmates? And in the real world, that's a very different story than it is in most romance films where you have to make a dramatic decision between one or the other one kills the other with a harpoon gun or something like that. I don't know, like something dramatic. Whereas in real life, people just like, people have lots of people from their past that had a huge impact on them and they have a huge emotional tether to that person, but it doesn't necessarily have to end explosively or ruin things. And that's kind of discussed in this film, but really the script doesn't doesn't do much to like draw a line between these two characters and how they are different in terms of their personality, how they are different in terms of... And there's one little bit where she talks about how he's more... Uh, Sung is more traditionally Korean, but really, yeah, like these characters, you know, you can't kind of work out who the main character likes spending more time with or, you know, why we feel drawn back to this uh, why why we feel drawn back to Sung, what he offers there's a lot up in the air and i think that many people are going to really enjoy it but that's kind of because it lets them impart their own meaning onto it yeah maybe for me it's a film that has its kind of cake and eats it because it does suggest this uh, this concept um, i can't actually remember the term but it's the idea of past lives in korea there's a suggestion that you, everybody has a connection so if, if you have a connection with someone it's probably because you have a connection from a generation past um and that's an interesting idea, but it's also sort of debunked. You know, it's like Nora says that this is just what a Korean guys say on dates to like hook up with yeah. women. Um, so, so it's saying it's it's a it's a foolish idea, but it, the film also says it is a, a real thing as well. Mm. So it's trying to do both at the same time, and it's it's trying to suggest that you know a connection where you meet someone and you connect over things like the movies you like or the books you read or your your job or your profession, your temperament or the city you want to live in is a stronger connection than this kind of mystical thing, which I, yeah. I would agree with. But then the film also sort of suggests that maybe it doesn't. And that's that's maybe where it kind of frustrated me a little bit. Mm-hmm. It, it tries to say both at once. Maybe that's, maybe maybe it's just trying to be more nuanced. Uh, but I think it was just a little bit too subtle um, in that way. I also kind of just think, 
I mean, maybe this is just me, but I just thought these 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 two guys <laughs> probably shouldn't be fighting over this woman. I I I thought that the character played by Greta Lee, even though Greta Lee is amazing, I can, I can see why these two men are drawn to her. She's super charismatic, very talented, but you know she does play these guys along, mm-hmm. and, and I, I I found her behaviour very strange. Why, if she knows she wants to stay with her husband, does she string the guy along? And then why, if she does love her husband, why does she drag him out on this date where she talks Korean to her childhood friend? It's like the most awkward... I mean, it's, it's great drama, it's great tension, but it's also a terrible way to treat someone. Yeah, I mean, it like a lot of characters come off in quite unflattering ways. Hey Sung, for example, like is the one that kind of hits her up on Facebook and then they Skype for a while and then she kind of breaks off with him and it kind of gives the sense later on when they come back into each other's lives that you know Sung is the one holding a light for her she's got her own life but yeah she is still like seeing him but there's like I say a lot unsaid they don't seem to be communicating very well and it leads to this tension and it's not like you know it, it I think that you can have a romance film that is about having lots of different people in your life who have like impacted you and you have an emotional connection with that isn't necessarily about how it's like you know awkward for your boyfriend and it's just an uncomfortable night out or whatever like you know you can just like gracefully accept that people have had lives before you and it can be fine so maybe i wasn't the right audience for this or whatever but i wasn't like swept up in the intense emotions of it all i was kind of just like this is really awkward i wouldn't want to be here the polycules fighting now folks having said all that should people still go and watch it? I mean, people love it. Like, I think we are kind of in the minority. Yeah. People do think this is an amazing film. And like I say, I think the last half hour is great. Um, you know, once it all comes together, I can. it's satisfying. But uh, but I just thought it took a long time to get there and it maybe doesn't ha- have enough going for it. You know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really dig into the situation enough for me. Yeah, it's not exactly... Whilst I, you know, I'm always on the lookout for unconventional romance films, this isn't exactly what I'm on the lookout for, but I do think that people will take a lot away from it. Big props to Sung, who in the 12-year time skip has apparently just kept meeting up with the same three guys for sitting around and drinking together, and it's like, I wish I had a friend group that immortal. You know how hard it is to meet up with friends after 12 years to get a drink together? And they've just been doing it the whole time. A- absolute king of looking out for your boss. Uh, yeah, I mean, the lads, I want that to be the spin-off. This is the story that I want to know, is how do these people keep meeting up and getting drinks every fucking weekend for 12 years? Past lads. There we go. So, uh, at best, a qualified recommendation for Past Lives, which is in cinemas from Friday. It's at the GFT, the Cameo, and DCA in Dundee. They all have it. So if it sounds like your kind of thing, then go check it out. Hi, everyone. My name's Carmen Thompson. I'm programming an audience manager for an organization called We Are Parable. And I just wanted to let you know about a super exciting opportunity we have available at the moment for black filmmakers and content creators working in Scotland. Um, So just to let you know a little bit about us, we're an award-winning platform and we provide opportunities for audiences across the globe now Um, to experience and respond to black cinema in culturally relevant and unique ways. And um, some of you may have been along to one of our film events. We've done a few in Scotland now. Um, But alongside this work, we also do a lot of work supporting and providing opportunities for filmmakers. And we're really excited to be bringing back our programme Momentum for a third year. And Momentum is a six-month 
programmed that's designed to support black filmmakers and content creators through industry mentoring support, mental health and well-being support, and also access to industry professionals more broadly through masterclasses, networking events, and also opportunities to pitch your work to commissioners. So for the last two years, the program has been supported by Channel 4, and they'll be back again for our third year. And they're joined by Sony Pictures Television. And we're really excited to have these two powerhouses behind us. And they'll be involved in the program in various op- in various ways. And you'll have opportunities to interact with them throughout the six months. So to give you a flavour of what will be involved... Um, Like I said, we have a series of masterclasses and they'll cover areas from pitching, funding and financing, distribution and film festival strategies and co-production, just to name a few. Um, And these will take place in person and online. So it's very much a hybrid program and it's it's very much meant to run alongside whatever you are currently working on. It's not in replacement of a full-time job. We definitely will be expecting all of our participants to be working alongside it. It's very much about supporting you in whatever your journey currently looks like. And speaking of which, each successful participant, as I said, will be allocated an industry mentor and you will have a minimum of one session with them every month over the six months. And you'll also have a minimum of um, four mental health and well-being sessions as well. Um, So this year's programme will run from next month, this October, until April next year. Um, And applications are currently open until the 13th of of September, so not long to get your applications in. Um, And this is our third year, so we've had two years and we've supported... 80 filmmakers and content creators so far, including Scotland's own Adura Onishile, who some of you um, may have caught her debut feature film, Girl, which opened the Glasgow Film Festival earlier in the year. And it also recently just won Best Feature at Black Star Film Festival in Philadelphia, which is super exciting. Um, so yeah, like I say, applications are open now. If you head to our website, weareparable.com forward slash momentum, that's weareparable.com forward slash M-O-M-E-N-T-U-M. You'll find the application form there. There's also a bunch of um, FAQs in case you have any questions about the form. And there's also a recording of an information session we did earlier um, in the month in case, uh, yeah, in case there's anything that's not clear. Um, yeah, so... This is for everyone. There is no experience level required. You could just be really starting out in film and wanting to, yeah, wanting to kind of figure out how to get into the industry. You could have been working in the industry for a while now, but kind of hit a rut. Um, We really just want you to make clear in your application why you, obviously, but also why now and why, what would this program mean for you and why, what, why would it be meaningful in your, in your journey as you find yourself at the, in this moment. So, yeah, we really want to make sure we get uh, a bunch of people, a cohort from across the country. So we're really, if you're a filmmaker, a content creator working in Scotland, please apply. There's also a contact um, email on that page in case you wanted to get in touch with any questions. But yeah, we otherwise, we really look forward to reading your applications. Thanks. Okay, next up, the Farm Man film. 
perhaps better known as A Life on the Farm. So this is a documentary about eccentric English farmer Charles Carson, a man who spent his days making a series of bizarre and inventive home movies, which are kind of unearthed after his death and soon gain a new lease of life, courtesy of everybody's favourite portal for exchanging information, the internet. Um, it's a documentary directed by Oscar Harding, who I believe was basically this guy's neighbour in a kind of rural uh, Shropshire village, as opposed to an urban Shropshire village. Um, and the documentary itself was co-produced by the people from Found Footage Festival. So, Ellie, what did you think of A Life on the Farm? Um, I'm glad I watched it because the story of Charles Carson is very like uplifting and inspiring and his story is so well captured in the art that he made. But you get the sense that his films are so, and his pictures as well, are so unconventional that it's kind of hard to wrap a traditional documentary around them. Uh, so the director, Oscar Harding, I got the sense, doesn't fully understand what sort of documentary he wants to make. Like at the start, we have this big clip show where person after person talks in a very out of context way to hype you up for whatever you're about to see. And, you know, there's this statement, that statement, and someone's like, the behavior was very reminiscent of the serial killer Ed Gein. And that line never comes back because almost from the beginning, every single thing that we learn from Charles Carson it only makes us more sensitive to him. And he's never suggested to be violent or anything. So like that little bit of attention grabbing, oh, this is a dark and sinister story. Uh, it seems kind of like they're vying for the true crime audience and then winds up just maybe being libel. Like halfway through, there's this bizarre sequence where all the clips play in increasingly quick succession. So you feel like overwhelmed with like pictures of headlights in the fog and it's like going faster and faster. Like do, 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 do. And that, that's like a horror film thing. That's like, you know, that's like a documentary, like a, a really dark story and, and all the clips come together. But this guy's life is not a horror film. It's really sweet and really interesting. And we've learned it by this point. Um, so like there's just, you know, a kind of struggle, I think, to work out what to do with this content and how to make it super popular because it's worth bringing to people. There's a really broad amount of little talking head testimonies, people from all walks of life, some who knew him personally, and they all shine like light on the uh, topic and and why this guy might have such like an idiosyncratic attitude to life and death. There's like psychologists, there's priests, there's poets. Um, and these are the really interesting ones, but there's also sort of like the American internet commentators who treat it a bit more like a viral video. They're sort of like, you know, oh, and when, you know, he freeze frames to show you the chicken, that's so goofy. It's haha, so hilarious. And it's like, I don't care about these guys. Like, I have absolutely no interest in, in like, bring us back to the poets who are kind of trying to interface with the art that he made for the sake of making it. You know, it is worth the watch just for the exposure to, uh, the exposure to Charles Carson, uh, who's, you know, a total outsider artist, someone who embodies cinema as an art form, artist therapy, and, and you know, creativity just is the most natural thing. Like, he just picks up a camera and just does it in a very crude but really, really interesting way. And, uh, yeah, there's, like, so much to talk about from his art, but the documentary is not just his art. It's also a lot of, you know, editing around that doesn't quite fit. Yeah, I don't know how you felt about it, Jamie. I did think that framing was an issue. There was kind of a sense that this was, let's look at this weirdo ephemera first, and then let's tell the story of the guy who made it second. It also feels that like me and Ellie were talking about this earlier on the way over to the studio, that actually there's an issue where it almost feels like two different films that have been spliced together at some point, because I th you wonder whether initially this was a documentary very much from the perspective of like the local community who didn't realise that this 
prolific and bizarre filmmaker was living just across the way from them. And then when he becomes a viral sensation, the story then becomes, this guy from England was making some incredible films. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, then you get all these like American found footage talking heads who add, I would say, nothing to the story. It's, sorry. <laughs> and another thing. Um, yeah, they just don't add anything. It's just a lot of, man, we saw this footage and we're like, whoa, this is some footage. And then it just cuts away to something else. Like, I don't see the purpose of, they agree with me, um, I don't see the purpose of them being in it. It feels a bit like, Jamie, like it's two films that are fighting for prominence. And the fact that it's co-produced by the Found Footage Festival people does make me wonder, did they come on board as long as we could make this up? Basically, let's make this all about me. Yeah. Miss John found an Alan footage the founders of Found Footage Festival. Yeah, I, I agree. I hated those guys as well. Um, I, I find documentaries about ordinary people a bit uncomfortable, especially people who are not in the public eye. You know, not, he wasn't a public figure, hmm. you know, um, and I just feel a bit uncomfortable, you know, especially just about the consent of this, you know, like, like how, like, I guess you found this video. What right do you have of telling this guy's story if you have really no connection to him? Um, so you had a real issue with all these talking heads. A lot of them didn't know Charles and they were coming up with all these kind of crackpot theories and cod psychology to explain why he was making these films. And I, th I think you're right, Ellie. He making these films, he wanted to make films because he had, was creative and, and he was using it to like, you know, because he wanted to like, like I don't think it has to be any deeper than that you know and his films are interesting and weird and there's a kind of um, a weird kind of, I think why they're so interesting because there's a disconnect he's so cheery he's like this kind of like Alan Partridge-esque uh, presenter but presenting his life and his life is like on a farm and it's full of like death and like um, cow placentas and uh, you know just like you know it's, it's quite dark stuff but he, he presents it in such a cheery fashion and that's why the films are kind of startling uh, it's just like it's, you know there's, there's kind of David Lynch thing going on there the films are great the talking heads are stupid uh, the, the film does get a little bit more affectionate towards Charles towards the end and I feel like that's when it improved I, I actually hated the, the first half when it was compared to Ed Gein it's like such a stupid comparison like especially I mean, I can see why he does some strange things, but uh, but but, he, but also Ed Gein killed people and he didn't. Like, yeah, it's yeah. Just so unfair yeah. a comparison. Yeah, there's I, I, never I, any suggestion that he's actually done anything untoward. Well, well, just, the, yeah. well there's a suggestion. But that's what I thought it was going to be the twist. He's a murderer, but no, he just like you know he he took some 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 very funny and affectionate pictures of his mother after she died to remember her. You know, it's like actually really moving. And and these and like you say, these kind of daft American jocks are like laughing about it. I just yeah, I just find it all quite distasteful. So, and I actually just want to see more of the films as well. I feel like they maybe had a limited amount because it feels like he had a huge volume of stuff, but they seem to show the same stuff over and over again. I don't know if they had a only a small amount they could show. But yeah, it made me want to watch his films. If that's if that's the point of the film to like show people that this guy's talented and you should go out and find his stuff, I think it, it succeeds because I want to do that. I want I want to go to YouTube now and watch some of this weird stuff. But yeah, the film itself is. Is, is bad I think it's just not good filmmaking um, I can maybe if they just concentrated on the people who did know Charles I think it would be much more interesting like those are the best anecdotes there's a woman who like uh, says Charles would come every week with a new video with three hours of stuff on it and just say well watch that I'll come back next week and pick it up and she and, and she had to like try and fake that she'd seen it and they knew and, and it says well okay well, you didn't clearly didn't watch that I'll be back next week you know that's a great story and I would love more of that stuff the kind of sweet stories about this guy you know who was like eccentric he's no more eccentric than most people you know like uh you know if you met a farmer they're all 
a bit weird, you know. Yeah, actually, so. the they talked to the priest who actually came in to give the like last rites to his dead mother, whilst he was, you know, taking pictures and like, you know, filming them in poses and stuff like that. And the priest is the most like unbelievably like, oh well, you know, it's a little unusual, but happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah. people people tend to be different from one another. Like he ha- he for him like he's very clearly like not expecting to have this camera thrust in his face and being told to describe what's so like weird and freaky about this dude because there's nothing to him like you know he's just ordinary like this is a guy who this is a, a priest who must have like seen all sorts of like strange behavior that people have when they're grieving and um yeah completely the opposite side of like these american guys who kind of like treat it like it's some sort of jackass thing or some sort of like like lost film horror analog horror youtube video when it's not it's just like yeah some really like creative dude who's just doing his thing and and yeah like it doesn't need that kind of fanfare around it it doesn't need that kind of like that 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 border that that really intense border that the film gives it yeah, because he does have, like uh, Jamie said, there's a very kind of Alan Partridge energy to his stuff and very kind of Frank Sidebottom with like his, he has little handmade animations and a very, yeah, idiosyncratic delivery. I think that, yeah, the talking heads with the neighbors and the people closest to him, they paint like this picture of a real person trying to, who had like a really tough, like, life in general and kind of moved around a fair bit and obviously was like, the subtext of, I'm not, it's not even subtext, it's just actual text of like the reason that his dead mother is in the house is because he has to look after his dead mother on his own on this farm that he also has to run. And yeah, when you just see people being like, ah, oh, it's crazy. Who would live on a farm? <laughs> like, shut up, you dick. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, I also didn't like the stuff about these people saying, oh, well, I went in this house and it was that messy. This house looks cool. Like, he's got like some like cool stuff hanging he's around. Got, like, like big copper pans hanging over yeah. his like, 200 year old fireplace he's hanging out with his chickens like i I like i think uh you know that's just so judgy i don't know like i I didn't like the kind of attitude of these people at all like i just thought this guy he's eccentric you know like if you if you if you put a a camera on anyone you'd think their life was a bit weird you know so i'm sure people think i do weird things but i don't want some american dude like commentating (laughs) around 20 years reaction (laughs) well i'm sure that someone but you know what Cine skinny at the skinny UK. Well, I've got a little film experiment we can do in the winter. Um, so that was A Life on the Farm, which is out in the UK this weekend. And I feel like it's going to be one of these ones that will do a little tour around various independent cinemas and stuff before going to streaming. So that is A Life on the Farm. We're going to see Charles films. I, I want to see his like crazy skeleton drives a tractor movie. You know, I want to see. Yeah, I want to see the one where you nearly set that tractor on fire. Mm-hmm. That is the, yeah. I mean, that's jackass right there. I'm Charles Carson <laughs> and I'm going to put a skeleton on this tractor and crash it into a fence. <laughs> Hello and greetings from Venice. Um, if this is really echoey, I'm so sorry. I am in the bathroom <laughs> of our Airbnb because there's a really loud gondola outside, which is such a Venice statement. Um, Jamie, don't you dare cut this. This is for the public. The public need to know. Um, but I am very excited to be tuning in very briefly to tell you all how it has been. Um, it has actually been... I would say a relatively average year for the Venice Film Festival. There's still a few days left, but to be honest, there's not that much really left to see. Um, But there have been some really, really wonderful films, but I would say overall, compared to like the last couple of years that were had some really, really remarkable things, 
like um, all the beauty and bloodshed, Santa Mère, Power of the Dog. And there hasn't really been anything that feels utterly game changing, perhaps in that way. Um, but I also haven't seen as much as I normally do because I have been practicing self-care and not washing myself. <laughs> so maybe that's also partly just the kind of quantity um, kind of determining factor. But some things that I have loved. The wonderful story of Henry Sugar, which is the Wes Anderson Roald Dahl one, um, only 40 minutes long, is actually really gorgeous, really, really beautiful. Um, it kind of depends how you feel about Wes Anderson, I suppose, as to whether you'll enjoy it. It is so very, very much a Wes Anderson thing. It has all of his usual shtick, but it also does something really beautiful, kind of in a similar vein to the French Dispatch, but I think better. And it's really thinking about the sort of textuality of how we tell stories or the kind of materiality of it, I suppose, not even textual. Um, so it's kind of within all of these like frame narratives and who is narrating what and who is appearing and what. And um, the actors um, have Dev Patel, Benedict Cumberbatch, Ralph Fiennes, and they all kind of crisscross over each other. And so it is as much a study of how we kind of tell stories and how they're contained as it is anything else. So that was really lovely. Um, Yogas Lanthimos's Poor Things Bucks, in every sense of the word, is honestly a rip-roaring time, but also very, very clever and just expansive, balls to the wall, um, exploration of agency and autonomy and especially kind of how that is gendered. Um, and already people have started sex scene discourse about it, but it really is in many ways, not even a response to sex scene discourse, but a response to general kind of puritanical um, attitudes to sex, which I actually don't think I have ever seen in a mainstream film to in as much as poor things as mainstream. Um, but I think he's quite a like at least well-known director. I don't think this is like art house, art house. Um, for them to do like that. So that's great. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, the new Hamaguchi Evil Does Not Exist is stunning. Um, and that is as someone who is not Hamaguchi head. Um, as we know, I think we discussed in our podcast, I did not super click with Drive My Car or Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. But this one is almost gothic in some ways. Definitely quite like folkloric um, and takes place in like this kind of frozen wood in this village. Um, and it has this real like otherworldly quality to it, but it's about glamping <laughs> and about this kind of um, company that want to set up this glamping thing in this um, not protected, but quite secluded village and about the kind of ecological and social tensions that that causes. Um, and there's this really beautiful scene that takes place in a car. Um, this man is good at cars, um, but it's honestly so sexy. So that was gorgeous. Um, Priscilla, Sophia Coppola, Priscilla, Thank God, didn't disappoint, um, is really, really beautiful, is very much a companion piece, I think, to Marie Antoinette. Um, and it very much feels of that genre film that I think she hasn't sort of done quite like that in a while. So if you are like me, more of a fan of the early Coppola, like it very much feels like a return to that really kind of delicate and bruising, the most amazing lead performance. Um, and yeah, just really kind of goes back to her roots of what does it mean for like the violence of girlhood, like the kind of ways in which our society is created, like a violence out of it. 
and that is just yeah it was really gorgeous and then Linklater's headband is so fun it's such a fun time the audience were loving it it's about a professor who is also just kind of like helps the police with like undercover work and he like pretends to be a hitman and then he will like get people to admit to want to hire a hitman and then he'll like the police will swoop him basically and then he meets this woman and it has Glenn Powell in it who yeah I'm not gonna say some of my thoughts on that and particularly him because I really do think it is not safe for work but it is just so sexy and fun um, and just like a proper like comedy that just feels like it's done so like masterfully you know like there's nothing kind of stupid or throwaway about it but it is really good and then I have just got out of Origin which is Ava DuVernay's um, latest film which is an adaptation of a non-fiction book um, that was at the top of the bestseller list for the last like real like in the kind of um, 20 like 20 era um, era it was an era it lasted 12,000 years um, and it's an adaptation of this non-fiction book about how essentially America's kind of like racial hierarchy is emblematic of the caste system that we kind of can see reflections of in Nazi Germany and um, India. And so it's kind of trying to move not beyond race, but kind of say like there is a much bigger kind of structural thing at play. And it's really clever how she kind of adapts this non-fiction book because she centers it on the writer and on the process of writing it. Um, and it is very moving, um, very clever in parts. I think she's very good at thinking about structural tipping points in history and weaving them together. It does get a little like not quite mawkish, but a little heavy handed towards the end and a little sentimental. Um, and I think it would have been better if it had just like held back a little bit. But still, I I really, I thought it was great. Holy shit, this is long. Oh, my God. Okay, maybe you will have to cut some of this, Jamie. Um, but anyway, that's The Dispatch from Venice. Um, I hope that is helpful. <laughs> and I'll see you all back in Scotland soon. Okay, bye. So kind of 0 for 2 so far, but following on from A Life on the Farm and ahead of A Cat Called Dom, which is Will Anderson and Ainsley Henderson's debut feature that is very much about the process of making a film, we thought for our little chat this week, we would talk about some films that are about filmmaking, whether that's documentaries that kind of follow the process of filmmaking or fiction that kind of like charts the various things that do or don't happen in the course of making the business called show cinema division uh so jamie i thought i'd come to you because every time i come to you on one of these things you hit me with some out of the back of the encyclopedia deep lore from cinema history and it's always good fun so i'll come to you first what do you want to talk about well i'm not too sure if this is uh too deep it's probably a basic pick actually it's uh so it's francois truffaut's 1973 film day for night which is like one of the f- earlier films i guess to put the idea of you know make a f- kind of film within a film francois truffaut plays a filmmaker in this film who's making uh, this kind of melodrama and nothing is going right his, he's got uh, actors who are acting up who are having affairs um, you know he's got like problems with like, the sets he's got problems with the lighting he tra- can't get this day, day to night style to work um, you know uh, like uh, so, so it's just full of all these fun characters you get behind the scenes not just the actors but also the script girl the cameraman um, and it's, it's a really kind of affectionate portrait of a film set and how how really it's amazing that a film ever gets made, you know? Like, when you think of all the moving parts for movies, it's, it's amazing that even 
a few good ones get made because there's like so much chaos going on. You've got to rely on a team of hundreds of people to work together to make something. And this film kind of plays with that idea, like, you know, what happens when a few of those cogs don't work? Uh, and, uh, you know, how does like a director have to change from this kind of dream of making a masterpiece to just let's get this thing made because my actress is drunk and this Lothario um, keeps sleeping with all the other people on set. You know, that's so, so I'm sure that's happens in a lot of films and and it just kind of uh, depicts that it depicts the kind of chaos the fun um the cam- the camaraderie and uh yeah it's a really affectionate portrait of filmmaking i think is it similar in any way i haven't seen it so you've got me on the uh you've done well for me because you pulled out something that i had not thought about so thank you very much i'm the host of this podcast <laughs> um is it similar in any way to eight and a half the fellini one uh, kind of i guess eight and a half would be an inspiration this is much more fantastical this is much more kind of matter of fact about the nuts and bolts of filmmaking you know it's not the, not got the kind of glamour of a eight and a half say and um and it's and eight and a half is more of a like i guess this is maybe more of a satire hmm. than eight and a half is um but yeah i guess like they're, they're probably kind of like uh there's probably through lines um but it's but francis uh he's making he doesn't come off as quite as glamorous as the the, the director in eight and a half uh, put it that way the director in, a, in eight and a half i kind of in my mind that film is about what if just being a massive shagger was the best shortcut to make a film yeah. so it just goes wandering off and he's like ah, we'll deal with this later i'm off for an existential dark night of the soul which involves lots of shagging and driving italian sports cars it yeah. doesn't end well for him doesn't it then he have like a panic attack and he hides under the table I think so. It's like runs away from the press. I can't even remember how that film ends. Yeah, it's so fucking long. <laughs> but but you know, it's like this is much more uh, like a, a filmmaker. Like I mean, obviously Fellini lost film as well. But this is but he was like also uh, you know into the kind of carnivalesque uh, nature of filmmaking. Whereas Truffaut, I think, is much more about the nuts and bolts. And uh, just like about like he's much more interested. How am I going to get this little cat to drink some milk? You know, that's a whole scene, and it's like one of the, <laughs> the best scenes in the film. You know, so like uh, it's much more of the nitty gritty of filmmaking. Yeah, one that I wanted to flag up, which I have mentioned in passing before, which I think I think personally is another film about the kind of the nuts and bolts of getting films made is the Blair Witch Project, which I think gets lumped in with all the other found footage horror ones. But I always think it's more of a film about the kind of bravado and mundanity you need to make a documentary where you're basically like, we're going to go off into the woods thinking best case scenario, we get attacked by a ghost, but we got it all on tape. (laughs) So I think, yeah, it does get lumped in with other stuff, but it's always felt to me less like a kind of horror film and more like a kind of like a mockumentary and like a sort of, again, like a satire on the nature of filmmaking and the kind of attitude you have to have to go out and make this kind of film and the things you have to convince other people to do willingly or otherwise which then adds a kind of metal layer of them just like chasing the cast of the Blair Witch Project around the woods with pans in the middle of the night and then being like that wasn't us that was a ghost it's like <laughs> you're a fibber I know that ghosts aren't real um Ellie what did you want to talk about so it's interesting that you're talking about like the nuts and bolts of filmmaking very like a mechanical uh metaphors because I'm going to talk about Disney, which is the most mechanical form of filmmaking. Um, so Emperor's New Groove. Sorry. Emperor's New Groove was a film from 2000. It struggled at the box office, but it's kind of been a bit of a cult hit because it's kind of memeable. People love the memes from Emperor's New Groove. Um, but when it was originally being produced by, it was originally going to be directed by the Lion King director, Roger Allers, and Disney asked Trudy Styler to direct a behind-the-scenes making-of documentary at its very early stages when it was called Kingdom of the Sun. It was going to be like an Incan set Prince and the Pauper 
where Owen Wilson was going to be in it as Cusco's peasant doppelganger. And that's the thing, right? It's like a very friendly documentary. It shows how like fun it is to work at Disney and it's, you know, pulling the curtain back on the magic of Disney. And, you know, Disney in particular, like these writers say that when they struggle with the script, they're just down the hall from a bunch of like TV channel writers. So they can all pitch in and help each other on their ideas. And uh it's so wonderful. But there's this sort of like un foreseen darkness to the documentary there's a sequence where artists are just wandering around the hall like zombies waiting to hear the news about just what the executives are going to do with all the work they've put in so far if it's going to be worth it if if like their characters are going to be cut out if some people are even going to keep their job um sting is a perfect example he's the husband of the documentarian so we follow him quite closely in his journey of having to write seven songs for the film he starts out with this very like pr oh i was so excited to work with disney because we all grew up with disney and you know disney's magical and by the end of it he's saying that he doesn't want to be alloyed to this giant corporation that sucks up the best bits of every culture and regurgitates it he gets like very damning um and Thomas Schumacher and Peter Schneider are the two high-up Disney executives that everyone sort of lives in fear of. Apparently, when this de- documentary was shown to the employees, these guys got booze. They come across as incredibly nerdy bullies, as like incompetent bureaucrats. They say stuff like, "Oh no, 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 like I'm not objecting to this scene. I'm just saying it doesn't work." Like really, like vague, useless, unhelpful stuff. Uh, one of them at one point is saying to Sting that they, like, oh, you know, we want to keep coming back to the same musical theme throughout. You can't keep introducing new musical themes. And Sting has to explain to him, like, changing the chord doesn't mean making a new musical theme. Um, these people are just, like, completely incompetent. And um, Andreas Deja, who is a character designer for the film, who designs Isma, um, you get to see him at the beginning as well, like... And he, d- he does the whole animator thing where he's got this big mirror in his office. So he's like this awkward little German guy, but he's like sticking his hips out and sashaying because he's trying to capture Yzma's movements. But by the end, he's just straight up like very German, very existential. Like, I've completely lost all passion for this project. Like, I'm totally checked out. And even Eartha Kitt says she prefers the version of the character that she was voicing before and that the the earlier drafts of Yzma were more profound. And, like, here's the thing. Emperor's New Groove is really celebrated for being, like, quite a memeable film. People like it. I think it's quite good. So it's not like they've irreparably butchered it, but they've they've made this documentary that's kind of backfired because it's shown all this fear and anxiety and people getting the passion sucked out of them. And, like, the big ambitious ideas that they have have been consistently reduced and the documentary can't really explain why. Like, Schumacher and Snyder don't really compromise. It's not like, oh, someone has their idea chucked out because someone else's idea has to come in. It's just like everyone's told to scale down, 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 just reduce. And then these two nerds are like grinning like they're part of the team and that they're friends with everyone. It's very Michael Scott. Um, So it was never released by Disney. A heavily edited version was included in the Emperor's New Groove DVD special features, but the actual documentary wasn't released until... A few years ago when a rough cut was leaked online, that's still available on the Internet Archive. That's how I was able to see it. But like the thing is, this isn't the only time that pulling the curtain back on the magic has backfired. There's like this uh, 10 part docuseries on Disney Plus about the production of Frozen 2, which I've not watched because that sounds insane. And who cares about Frozen 2? But they kind of like went viral. This clip from it went viral because it's everything's positioned about how much of a triumph it is that all these people are coming together and creating this film. But like 
the animators are, are sort of like grinning through the mania, kind of like a blink twice if you're here against your will thing. And they're like, oh, we've rendered, we've spent hours and hours rendering this huge river of water that Elsa has to like propel. Um, and it's taken hours and hours of work. And I just hope that they finish the script soon so someone can tell us where all this water is supposed to go because we have to animate it. So, you know, because it's always really big and smiley and people aren't allowed to, to sound as pissed off or exploited as they really are, but it is all in the subtext. And, you know, with word now that following the SAG after strikes, the VFX and industry is taking its first steps towards unionization. You can figure that like the misery at Disney HQ has kind of only gotten worse in the past 20 years, but it is just really interesting in terms of like a documentary having an entirely unintended use in like motivating people against the really bureaucratic and meddling way that Disney produced films. Yeah, at least when Werner Herzog pulled that boat up that river, he knew where he was going. Like, he didn't get halfway up and be yeah. like, no, lads, what's the plan? <laughs> I'm not sure he's that. Have you seen Bird of the Dreams? <laughs> that seems even more chaotic. Um, uh, that was another film we should have could have talked about, actually, Bird of the Dreams. Anyway, but I, I'm interested. Did they think that Trudy Styler, just because like, she's Sting's wife, would make like a puff piece? Like, but it sounds I mean, like she made actually quite an interesting movie. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting movie. I don't know. I think that it is like, I don't know if it's part of maybe I don't know if they got Sting to do the songs and then Sting and Styler were like well only if we can make the documentary if Styler wanted to make a documentary or if yeah. Disney were like we want yeah, a documentary doesn't. made you don't know where this came from but clearly you, you do get to watch because I mean you know it's a huge animated film you get to see it at kind of like all levels of production you get to see writing designing animating songwriting and you get it takes like five years to put it all together so you really get to see the tone change you really get to see everybody and it's not just like you know oh my husband sting got pissed off by disney so i'm gonna make a vengeance film about it no like there, it, it closely follows other artists who have this great passion in the beginning and you know, they, they, they're they onto something that seems really interesting and artistic. They, they describe the original film, Kingdom of the Sun, as like very like mythological and biblical and huge in scale and unlike anything Disney's ever done before. And that's the thing. Maybe they were wrong. Maybe there's a reason it was all cut out. But you do see that it like wears people down and that employees work in really unreasonable conditions. I think there's one point where one of these executives, I can't remember if it's Schneider or Schumacher themselves, say that the sort of early screening of like the first storyboards to the executives are the most terrifying thing. The name of the film, The Sweatbox, comes from the nickname for the theatre in which it's shown at Disney HQ because it's where all the animators sweat and they're worried that their work's going to get cut. Um, but I'm, at one point, the executive himself, again, kind of jokingly, like he's part of the team, says, oh, you know, it's it's, it's like having uh, your pants pulled down in front of everyone, but also your hands are getting cut off so you can't pull them back up. And it's like, you're the one that's <laughs> pulling people's pants down. Yeah, who do you imagine that you are in this metaphor? <laughs> So, Pants puller, hand chopper, both. Like, what's your yeah. angle here? Buddy? If you're like me and you you get a lot of schadenfreude out of realizing just how like terribly Disney runs things, but also you want to like be sensitive to the fact that these films are made of lots of passionate people who you know have these great ambitious ideas and don't get to work in the best possible conditions, then this is a really interesting film. The link to the Internet Archive leak of the film is via its Wikipedia article. Excellent. Blair Witch is on now, and I think on one of the Amazon premiere things, and Jamie's Francois Truffaut film I could not find anywhere online, so you might just have to cough YouTube, cough, look for it, cough, cough, cough. Or get it on DVD, which is a thing you can do from shops. Uh, anything else from you, Jamie? 
or are we are we done with our bit uh, i think i'm done yeah. i think i'm done cool then i think that this podcast is done uh so thank you to ellie and to jamie just here thank you thank you to anahit who in another bit of tense confusion we have to assume has sent something in or this is going to be a very awkward segue and way to end the podcast uh thanks to jamie ehfm ehfm.live it's the best radio station and we will be back in two weeks time hopefully with some films that we enjoy more uh and with slightly more energy i think we've all been hit very hard by the sun i feel like that's what's happened we're all very warm yes i'm warm well that's that that's that then (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll be back in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.